When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you guys. Welcome to the Inner Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Carolina Salazar, and I'm so excited that you are tuning in today. I hope you've been having a good start to your week and that you are also enjoying the two episodes a week for Inner Growth that, you know, I'm ramping up. And if you have been tuning in on YouTube, I hope you've been enjoying that. For the next few guest episodes, I actually recorded them on Zoom, so not in person. So these will not be on YouTube, but for the solo episodes, all of them going forward on Thursdays, those will be up on YouTube if you want to check them out. So stay tuned for this week's solo episode on Thursday. But I am super excited to be sharing this episode with you guys because you guys know I'm all about hormone health. I got my hormone specialization and my health coaching certification. And through my content, I really focus on helping us know more about hormones because they're a big part of our health, right? And they play a huge role in our well-being, in our day-to-day lives, and little things, little shifts that we can implement into our routines and into how we eat and into how we live can really help our hormone health, right? And I'm really passionate about spreading this information and making it more accessible and more digestible as well. But I also, a lot of the times, get questions that are specific to people with PCOS. And so I really wanted to bring someone who had firsthand experience with PCOS, but who also was really educated on the topic and who could answer all of your questions about PCOS, all of my questions about PCOS, and just help us understand what it is better so you can figure out if you maybe have PCOS, because a lot of people go undiagnosed for a while. And also, if you do have PCOS and you're tuning in, this episode will give you so many tips on how to actually work with your body and with the condition to have a better experience when it comes to your cycle, to your overall energy levels, and to your wellness overall. So for today's guest episode, I brought on Hannah Mule. Hannah is also known as the Conscious Nutritionist on TikTok and on Instagram, and she not only has PCOS firsthand, but is also a registered dietitian, a physician's assistant, and a nutritionist. And so she is able to share her perspective as someone who has this firsthand, but also as someone who has studied this and who knows a lot of the science behind it. And we can debunk myths and be really straight up about what is a fact and what is not true and what are things that you can actually do to improve your life as someone who does have PCOS. So I'm super excited and we go into all things PCOS from what is PCOS, what are the symptoms, how can you know if you have it, to more of the lifestyle factors that you can implement to have a better day-to-day, better vitality, better energy levels, better hair strength, better mood with the context of having PCOS as well. So it's a really interesting conversation and even if you don't have PCOS, everything that Hannah shares are completely related to hormone optimization and I live by a lot of the same principles that she does even though I don't have PCOS and so 
If you're someone who wants to learn more about hormones, I am 100% sure you're going to love this episode. It's super amazing and informative. And so without further ado, let's hop into the episode. You can find all of Hannah's information in the description if you want to learn more. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at innergrowth.co and on TikTok at innergrowthpod. And if you want to be in the loop of future episodes, all you have to do is hit subscribe on Spotify or hit the plus button on the top right corner of Apple Podcasts. So let's hop into this amazing conversation. I will see you on the other side and let's get growing. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here today. Thanks for having me. I am super excited to chat with you about PCOS today because it's something that a lot of people in my community struggle with or are currently going through and wanting to navigate better. So we're going to dive into all of that. But before we do, the question I always ask every single guest I have on the podcast first is, do you know your sun, moon, and rising? Oh my gosh. So (laughs) my son is Taurus. But I have to be honest with you, because rising sign is the one you need to know your time of birth, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know my time of birth. We have no idea where my birth certificate is. And my mom actually kind of had a traumatic birth. She had to be put under and get a C-section. So she's like, I literally don't remember. So I think it's an afternoon, which I think makes me a Virgo rising. But like, you can get your certificate from the state department. Uh It just costs money to order it. So I think I'm going to have to do it so I can finally learn what my rising sign is. I think it would be definitely worth it. But one thing a lot of people don't know is they can know everything else, like your Mercury, your Venus, like just without your rising sign. Yeah. You can just put like unknown on a birth chart software and you would know everything else, like your moon, for example. But definitely worth while I could totally see you being a Virgo rising, though, it would make a lot of sense to me. But I'm also a Taurus. Okay. So I identify very much with like the Taurus thing. So I've never looked too, too much into it. Because I like really being into luxury, I've always wanted very luxurious things and like good food, good wine, chocolate yeah, like good tea, food, like a- recipe creators. Yeah. Like loving cooking, healthy meals, nourishing meals. Do you like like scents? Like good- yeah, like everything I want is nice. And I've always been that way. Like I've always just been very obsessed with like the things around me. So I've always identified with the Taurus. I actually don't know much about Virgo rising, to be honest with you, mostly because I am not convinced that that's right (laughs) based on what we know about when I was born. So I definitely have to get the birth certificate for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely worthwhile. But like Virgo is all about being of service, helping other people. It's also very connected to the gut, to health. So like wellness, things like that. So I could see it, but definitely worthwhile to to find out officially. Yeah. But for anyone listening who doesn't really understand what PCOS is, can we just start there? Just like, what is PCOS? Yeah. So polycystic ovarian syndrome is honestly almost like a bucket term for menstrual irregularities with women, usually resulting from cysts on the ovaries and hormonal imbalance. However, you don't have to have cysts on the ovaries to have PCOS, actually. Most people are confused about that. The diagnostic criteria includes cysts on the ovaries as one of the diagnostic criteria, but you actually don't need it to have it. So polycystic ovarian syndrome usually results from anovulation, meaning the cysts aren't released from the ovary, causing those cysts to happen. Um, But the actual root causes of PCOS happen before that. Cysts on the ovary is actually kind of like the last step. The hormone imbalances that lead to PCOS, such as blood sugar imbalance, adrenal issues, inflammation are kind of what I like to try to address and talk about a lot on my channel. 
Wow. I didn't even know that. Like I thought that to have PCOS, you need to basically have the cysts. So that's pretty wild to me. So can you elaborate a little bit on the symptoms of PCOS that someone can look out for if they're not like familiar with it? You yeah. mentioned menstrual irregularity. So would that be just having an irregular cycle in general? Or would it also go into the other things that you shared? Yeah. So when it comes to diagnosis, most doctors or healthcare providers will use something called the Rotterdam criteria right now. One of the Rotterdam criteria are presence of cysts on the ovaries with an ultrasound. That's the only way you can really see that or a CT scan. But the others are, one is irregular period, even a long menstrual cycle. So technically over 35 days. So if your period is every 45 days, but regular, it might be something to look into. Obviously having periods less often or skipping months altogether, that's definitely something to think of. The other thing is physical signs and symptoms of elevated testosterone is in the diagnostic criteria. So that would be acne, hair loss, facial hair, and other things are excessive weight gain, darkened skin around the neck, something called acanthosis nigricans, which is related to insulin resistance. So the main thing is if someone if their periods are really off, if they're really struggling with weight gain or any of those symptoms, it can be something to look at. However, I will say there's a lot of reasons that people's periods can get off and they can have weight gain in this day and age, right? So thyroid conditions can cause that, nutrient deficiencies can cause that. So there's a lot of things that can cause that, not just PCOS. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that that's really interesting. And just understanding that it's not a one size fits all diagnosis, like you don't have to only have cysts to have PCOS, it could be all these other things. But then again, all these other things could have different causes too. So for someone to get like a diagnosis, how does that usually work? And do you think because there's so many different variations of how it kind of manifests in people's health, that there's a lot of people who have PCOS and don't know that they have it? Yeah, so I actually, I have a theory that like in 10 years, there's going to be multiple diagnoses or subclasses of PCOS because obviously not everybody's the same. And right now they say one in 10 women has PCOS and I feel like it might be differentiated slightly. But usually if you talk to your doctor about it and you get uh, ultrasound and they see cysts on the ovaries or they do lab testing and see elevated testosterone or you're having like very obvious signs and symptoms of elevated androgens, it can be diagnosed that way. It's not like it can be diagnosed from a simple blood test. It's kind of a criteria diagnosis, like I said. So something you have to meet multiple criteria. The tough thing is, and I think one of the reasons people get frustrated with doctors, which is hard to understand, is that when you're on the birth control pill, which many young women are, or any sort of IUD or anything that's inhibiting your hormones, it can kind of mess with what would show up on your lab work. And it's also going to prevent cysts from forming, right? Which is part of why doctors will recommend it. So if you feel like something's off, but you're on the pill, it can be kind of hard for docs to do anything about it, to be completely honest with you. Because if they look at your lab, your testosterone might be a little bit lower because of the birth control. And you're likely not going to see those cysts on the ovaries because of the birth control. So, you know, when people get frustrated, they're like, my doc just said to stay on my birth control, not to say all doctors do the right thing, but there's not much in the traditional medical model that there is to offer for that. Right. So that's what can make it a little bit tricky is, is being on some sort of birth control when trying to get a diagnosis. And I think that's one of the reasons people get frustrated. Totally. I mean, coming from like a more not selfish perspective, but like from my own experience, I've always had an irregular cycle. Like I used to have an irregular cycle. Then I went on birth control and I was on it for like 
between the pill and the IUD for a few years and I went off of it. Now it's going to be basically two years. And ever since then, like my period has come back. I have a period, but like some cycles I've had that were like 40 days, some were 31, some were 34. Like I've never been the type of person I'm like trying to change my mindset and like using my subconscious mind to my advantage to start saying I am the kind of person that has a very regular cycle, but usually it's going to vary a little bit. But I've done the ultrasound and I don't have any cysts. I also have done lab testing and my testosterone has always been like normal levels. I don't have really like acne or struggle with crazy weight gain. So I've always struggled with like the experience of having an irregular cycle and not really knowing Mm -hmm. what's causing it. Mm. That's interesting. Do you track your like temperatures do you ovulate regularly on a certain day or is that what's I do track my temperature I do track it I think I've had like one an ovulatory cycle when I was really stressed and I got sick two times in that cycle but I've never taken an LH test to like double check the ovulation so maybe that could be the next thing that I could experiment with trying to see like am I actually ovulating Yeah, because the follicular versus luteal phase time would be interesting to see what was varying. Was it the time to ovulation? Is the luteal phase short or long? That might be kind of the interesting thing to look into. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I'll definitely try that because I do do all the tracking. And even with cervical fluid, like I see it in my underwear, like I see it in the toilet paper, like the ovulatory fluid, the egg white fluid. And I also like feel ovulation pain. Mm -hmm. So I think I am. Yeah. It's likely that you are. Yeah. I just like think my body is still adjusting. Yeah. That's very possible too. Yeah. So yeah. Working on it through like a lot of hormone healthy lifestyle shifts, which kind of brings me to my follow-up question, which ties to what you just shared, which is a lot of people who have PCOS, who I know have told me I'm on birth control because my doctor told me that when I'm on birth control, my uterine lining doesn't build up and not get shed. Therefore, the cysts don't form. And that's why I'm on birth control and I need to be on it. Can we talk a little bit about that? Like, how true is that? Or is there any other option for people who have PCOS and don't want to be on birth control? Yeah. So the main thing, there's two things that are happening there, right? So the cysts are actually unovulated eggs. So women with PCOS have no problem developing eggs, developing a follicle, but the hormone imbalance is just stopping them from rupturing a follicle. In a normal healthy cycle, you would develop a follicle, you would have an LH surge, you would release that egg, it would go into your uterus, it would be implanted or not implanted, and then you would shed it with a period, right? So the problem is that most of the women are having trouble creating that follicle. One of the ways birth control works is it keeps your estrogen levels mostly stable so you don't ovulate. That's the main reason you don't get pregnant when you're on the birth control pill, Mm -hmm. right? So it is in that way creating cysts from being formed because you're not going through that process. The second thing is when you get off your birth control every month or you stop your pill, it's causing a progesterone drop. That progesterone drop simulates what would happen in a normal menstrual cycle, which causes you to bleed. And that concept is totally right that they're releasing that uterine lining and bleeding. One of the biggest risks for young women with PCOS is actually endometrial cancer, because if the uterine lining builds up too much, because you're not having a regular period, it can cause something called endometrial hyperplasia, and it can be a big risk factor for endometrial cancer. So that's not to say the birth control pill is the only way to go about it, 
But I would certainly be concerned as a healthcare provider as well if someone got off the pill with PCOS and kind of just like went kind of off. Kind of yoloed like. Yeah, something. went off and then they didn't bleed for a year. You know, I get comments like that all the time on social media. I haven't bled in a year. I haven't bled in 16 months. And that makes me a little nervous. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not the only thing that you can do if you're trying to manage your PCOS naturally and you're not on the pill. You can take progesterone for a couple of days. And then when that progesterone drops, you'll naturally have a bleed. So sometimes doctors will offer people that if they haven't bled in three months, usually that's kind of the trigger point to do something like that. You know, the other option is the IUD, which isn't perfect either, but progesterone IUDs, which is like the Marina and the Kylina and the Skyla, they naturally thin the uterine lining, which decreases the risk of endometrial hyperplasia. And it's less systemic hormones likely than the birth control pill. So those are kind of the options to talk to your doctor about, obviously, but there is reasoning for medical providers' concerns, right? Because endometrial yeah. cancer actually is a very real risk with PCOS if you're not bleeding at all for extended periods of time. If you miss a period here or there, it's probably not that big of a deal. If your cycle's long, but you're bleeding regularly, it's probably not that big of a deal. The big thing to look out for is if not you're going- period, Like not having uh, period at all. If you're going for long periods of time with no bleeding, then that's that's something to think about. Got you. Thank you for clarifying that. Like when I was talking to my friends who were telling me, you know, their experiences with why they were in birth control, it was because of that reason that, you know, mm -hmm. it prevents the endometrial cancer. So mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. So before we dive into some of my other questions, can we talk a little bit about your own experience with PCOS, how you kind of discovered you had it? And then I believe you are not on birth control or the IUD. So clarify if you are or not, but I would love to hear a little bit about your diagnosis and then kind of how you choose to navigate that specific aspect that we were just talking about, about being on the pill, being on the IUD or not. Sure. And yeah. what you've done if you're not on it to just find better solutions and manage your symptoms. Sure. So looking back, I pretty much always had PCOS. And my PCOS is very much driven by insulin resistance and likely some traumatic experiences. I, my dad had cancer from when I was three to seven and then he passed away. And if you look at pictures, like I had like early puberty actually, like right after that happened, which is a real thing that happens to children that have like trauma. So there was a lot of things going on there probably, but I always had really long cycles. So I always got periods, but they were like 45, 50 days apart, middle school, early high school. But I don't think you pay that much attention to that stuff. Yeah. I had really really struggled with my weight. I always was like kind of that chubby friend with a lot of acne. I really, really struggled honestly from like sixth grade. And my mom was a healthy cook. We didn't really eat out. Like I had a sweet tooth for sure. But looking back, I was not eating different than anyone else was eating in that, in that time period. So I certainly had something going on that they did not. And then I actually went on Accutane in high school for my acne because that was a huge, huge problem I had. And when you go on Accutane, you also start the birth control pill. So the Accutane cleared up my acne, obviously. And then the birth control kind of regulated things cycle-wise for me. And when I was on the Accutane... It, I feel kind of sad for myself looking back because I was 16 and I was so desperate to not feel overweight and not have acne. I was like, I'm going to go on like a nutrition kick while I'm on this Accutane. By the end of the year, I'm going to be like skinny and lose all this weight and my skin's going to be clear. And honestly, like looking back, I was doing slim fast and like things that were mm -hmm. so early 2000s that I cringe <laughs> at now, but I don't know. So I kind of feel like I 
put a kibosh on everything with what I was doing there. I was eating a little bit more restrictive. I was on the pill. And then throughout college, I think things were pretty well managed. And then when I moved after college to start my graduate degree in nutrition, I don't know really what prompted it. I just wanted to get off the pill. I was like in the hospital during that year and there was a lot of illness and sickness around me. And it made me like more like, I don't know. I just wanted to be off all medications. I started Mm -hmm. eating organic. I just got a little bit more into that kind of lifestyle. So I got off the pill and first thing is I started losing a ton of hair, which is actually something that can happen to women when they got off the pill, even if they don't have PCOS, because just the changes in the hormones, but it extended longer than you would have anticipated with a normal healthy person. And then my periods were pretty long. So like every 45, 50 days. And then I gained quite a bit of weight. I think I gained like till the winter. I remember stepping on the scale when I got home for like a holiday and I had gained like 12 pounds very quickly. And then I went up to 20, like within a couple months, which is kind of a lot. I'm pretty short. So it was a lot on my, my frame. So that prompted me to go to the doctor, get my thyroid tested, get all those things tested. And I had elevated testosterone levels. And then I did get an abdominal ultrasound. I had cysts as well. So that was kind of how it got triggered for me. And honestly, at the time, it was kind of like confusing because I was in school to be a dietitian, right? So I was eating really healthy. I was working out. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't lose weight. Like I felt like I knew what to do to eat healthy and I just felt like a stranger in my body. So that was very mm-hmm. frustrating. And to be honest, it took me a long time to figure out how to kind of tackle things. And it wasn't until maybe two years later that I finally was like, okay, I really need to start eating for my blood sugar and cut out the honey, the maple syrup, the healthy desserts I'm doing, like a lot of that stuff. It's not necessarily unhealthy, but when you have PCOS and at the time I was very insulin resistant, it was not doing me any favors. So I really focused on that. I had to focus a lot on stress management and change a lot of things with how I exercise. And here we are today. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I'm sure a lot of people listening might like feel very seen based on your experiences, whether it was a rapid weight gain or oh my God, I'm struggling with acne and I'm a teen and I just want to go on birth control and take medicine to like make this go away or all of that. And so just really interesting hearing your story. And something that you mentioned was insulin resistance. You also mentioned the adrenals. You said, you know, a lot of the times, yes, PCOS can be tied to the cyst, but it can also be tied to these three things. So can we go over them? What exactly is insulin resistance? How does that play into PCOS? And then can we also talk about the adrenals, stress, and if there's anything else that you want to mention too. Yeah. So insulin resistance being the predominant one, it's estimated that like 70% of women with a PCOS diagnosis have some sort of underlying insulin resistance. Insulin resistance for like the most simple definition means that your body is just not very good at utilizing glucose. There's a lot more to that and why the insulin resistance develops and things of that nature. But insulin is basically the key that makes the sugar that's in your bloodstream go into the cells for energy. And if that key is not working properly or your body's not responding to it very well, you'll have elevated blood sugar levels still in your blood. That elevated blood sugar levels actually 
can prompt in women excess testosterone levels. Excess testosterone levels is what inhibits healthy ovulation, which causes the cysts, right? It also, testosterone converts to something called DHT, which is a main driver in the hair follicles of oil production, which leads to acne and hair miniaturization or hair loss. So that's a main, main driver. So if you look at the blood sugar, that's often a huge role. And the tricky thing is there's really not great tests for insulin resistance, to be honest with you. I mean, something called hemoglobin A1C is what you get checked at the doctor's office to see if you have prediabetes. But by the time you have prediabetes, that's pretty late stage insulin resistance, right? So there's fasting glucoses that you can check and certainly those will be an issue. But to be honest with you, if you have PCOS and you struggle with your weight, you probably can benefit from eating a blood sugar balanced diet, which to be honest, most women can. So it's pretty beneficial for everybody to focus on the foods that don't raise your blood sugars, that being protein, fat, and fiber. Yes. Yes. I love that we're diving into this because, and we'll talk about stress in a bit, but I'm huge on blood sugar balance. I think every single person who has a period, but in general, any human being would benefit from having balanced meals. So making sure that they're getting the healthy fats, getting a lot of fiber, and then also the quality protein. I cut out animal products from my life for a long time and reintroducing them into my life helped so much, not only because it gave me more energy, but also helped me find more ways to balance my blood sugar and add those good sources of protein in. So can you walk me through some foods that you love or just how anyone listening can start eating for just better and more balanced blood sugar? Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned being like plant-based. So I actually was mostly plant-based when I was diagnosed or eating a lot more only plant-based meals. And I was doing CrossFit, which are like probably the two worst (laughs) things that I could have been doing for myself, to be honest with you. I'm not saying CrossFit is horrible for everybody, but for me, I think it was definitely a producer of excess stress hormone because literally what those workouts are doing are like trying to simulate stress. Like you're trying to simulate being chased by a lion for 10 minutes. (laughs) So that plus eating a lot of plant-based meals was kind of a bad combination for me. So some of my current favorites, I honestly eat a lot of real whole foods, right? So when I was working as a physician assistant, I really had like only three minutes to talk to somebody about healthy food. What I would always say is if you could buy it at a grocery store in 1900, it's probably good for you or fine for you, right? Because people are always prone to isolate one specific food that's causing their problem. And it's usually not Mm -hmm. that case, right? And if you think about what your great grandma would have eaten, they would have eaten meat and eggs and properly prepared grains that they prepared themselves and probably had to soak or sprout. Not a lot of additives. They had vegetables. Real vegetables. Yeah. They had fruit. They would have probably eaten fermented foods that had been canned over the winter. You know, they would have eaten chicken. They would have eaten organ meats. They probably would have eaten a little bit of dairy too. That was grass-fed and probably raw, to be honest with you. (laughs) And That's how people always ate, right? Up until like 150 years ago before the industrial revolution. So that's like my quick and dirty rule. And that gets into the gluten and dairy-free thing that people often really ask me about with PCOS. And to be honest, it's really not black or white. Gluten actually, there is no, to my knowledge, and I would love for someone to send me some, I do not know of clinical trials for gluten and PCOS, to be honest with you. So I really like the recommendation does not come from profound evidence. If you think about what gluten is in, it's in wheat products. And most of the wheat products that Americans eat are very wraps, white bread, processed 
cakes, cookie, like highly processed carbohydrates, right? So I think a lot of the benefit people see from cutting out gluten in their diet when they have PCOS is from they're just removing a lot of those highly processed carbohydrates. I don't know if, if you're making your own slow fermented sourdough and you're having a little bit of it with eggs and avocado and some berries, that's probably a very different blood sugar response than a Dunkin' Donuts breakfast sandwich. When it comes to dairy, there is actually some trials on that. So it seems that dairy can promote something called insulin-like growth factor, which if you're insulin resistant, you probably wouldn't want a ton of that, but it doesn't seem all dairy products. So the higher fat content, the lower carbohydrate seems to do that less. The highest carbohydrate, lowest fat dairy would be skim milk. And then on the other end of the spectrum, high fat, low carbohydrate would be cream, hard cheeses, things of that nature. So I often recommend people with PCOS, especially if they're struggling with acne specifically, maybe steer away from skim milk, like sweetened yogurts that are made with skim milk products and see if that helps their skin. And if it does, you know, thinking about maybe adding in some cheeses or even a little bit of like, I think full fat cream in coffee, a tablespoon is probably better for somebody than getting like a huge oat milk latte, to be completely honest with you. But that's not the opinion of everybody. That's kind of the spiel on gluten and dairy. Do you follow Max Lugavere? I do follow. Yeah. I actually heard him say that in in another podcast about the the cream. Yeah. He's super obsessed with cream and coffee. But again, we are like reinventing the wheel here, right? That is probably how people always consumed coffee. Like if you look at ancestral cultures and everywhere around the world, they drink coffee usually after their meals. It's a small amount of it. Usually it's with some cream or sugar. And we just in America make everything psychotic. Like of course, these huge coffee drinks with like three tablespoons of sugar, a ton of skim milk, which nobody would have drank a hundred years ago, isn't good for us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I completely align with you. And I feel like sometimes going back to the basics is literally the best thing you can do for your health and really thinking in that way that you just described of what would people have eaten all that time ago, you know, mm-hmm. like many, many, many years ago. And can you also just quickly go over some watchouts for like things people might be doing that they might not realize are causing blood sugar dysregulation or could be contributing to insulin resistance? Like what are things that maybe you see a lot of people do that they don't realize is actually not the most helpful? Yeah. So the big thing I would say is not getting enough fiber. Most Americans are not getting enough fiber. And even if you think you are, count it for a couple of days and see where you're at. Because women are supposed to get at least 35 grams of fiber. But to be honest with you, most areas of the world, they eat more like 50 grams of fiber a day, right? So looking into that, I think is really important. I think most people, if they're health aware right now, know it's important to have protein in your meals, but fiber is what also helps keep you full and feed your gut microbiome. For PCOS specifically, it also can help excrete excess estrogen, which many women with PCOS are estrogen dominant. It kind of binds to excess estrogen in your GI tract and you poop it out. So that's extremely important. Beans, right? What are some other examples of high fiber foods? Yeah. So beans are a great one. There's actually two types of fiber. There's soluble and insoluble fiber. So soluble fibers are the ones that if you think about, if you put them in a bowl of water, if they would expand, it's a soluble fiber. So like beans, they're dried, they expand, chia seeds, flax seeds, like pretty much things that make like almost like a goopy gel if you leave them in water, that's Mm -hmm. a soluble fiber. Insoluble fiber is kind of just like the roughage. So if you think about if you throw broccoli in a bowl, it's not going to expand 
carrots mm-hmm. are not going to expand. Those are insoluble fibers, right? So there's only fiber in plant products. Beans are my favorite. Beans are actually my favorite carbohydrate, to be completely honest with you, because they are so high in fiber that they don't cause any blood sugar spike. So fiber is the indigestible portion of carbohydrate. So basically just goes through your digestive tract. So for me, I love them when I wore my glucose monitor for a little bit last year. I really did not have a very large glucose spike from beans. So like lentils, chickpeas, I love them. I would challenge people to try and get into prepping their own beans actually, because I love beans and canned beans are great, but a lot of canned beans are in cans that have a BPA lining, like a plastic lining, which is not the best for our hormones. It's probably not the end of the world, but it's so easy to make your own beans. So Mm -hmm. that's something that I'm always trying to remind people to get into if they can. Obviously the fruits that are the highest in fiber are like your berries, strawberries, blackberries, raspberries, pears, and apples are great source as well. The sweeter fruits usually have less fiber, like mango, pineapple, orange, but that doesn't mean they're not valuable. What about banana? Banana is actually not a huge source of fiber. There's only a couple grams in there, but it does actually, some of the prebiotics in the banana are good for your gut microbiome. So none of these things are necessarily bad, right? Like Mm -hmm. diversity is good. And Um, what about the highest fiber vegetables? Yeah. So the highest fiber veggies are those cruciferous veggies, right? Like your broccoli, your cabbage, your cauliflower, arugula, things of that nature. Sometimes those are harder for people to digest, especially raw. So cooking them, I think it's nice if I have extra broccoli, like cooking some extra broccoli to throw a little bit on a salad is a good bet. So those are the highest source of fiber. I like chia seeds and basil seeds as well as like an add-in in my smoothie just to get, because you can get 10 grams of fiber there pretty easily. Amazing. That's so helpful. I love that. I think you also said it in a very easy to remember way with the soaking in the water element. So is there anything else you would say aside from fiber that people might be doing that could be affecting their insulin and their blood sugar? Yeah. In a great way. I think a lot of the like healthy sugars, right? Like people are always asking me, what about maple syrup? What about coconut sugar? What about honey? And these things are great and they're from nature and can be enjoyed in moderation, right? But they do the same thing for your blood sugar as cane sugar is going to do. So if your blood sugars are a major issue, your matcha latte with a bunch of maple syrup, and even I love kombucha, but kombucha has quite a bit of sugar and maybe a protein bar that's made with dates. Then you come home from work and you make like a chickpea bowl with rice that's healthy, right? But the chickpeas on top of the rice is probably a lot of carbohydrates. So you're kind of compounding your blood sugar with all those things throughout the day. Like a perfect Mm -hmm. example of someone that's extremely well-intentioned, but like I, I see this all the time in my practice, right? Like they're like, I don't know, I'm eating healthy, right? They make themselves a matcha in the morning. They put maple syrup in it. And then they have oats for breakfast with maybe fruit and a little bit of sweetener. And then for lunch, they'll do a salad and then they'll go out for coffee that has sweetener in it. And then they'll do like maybe a Lara bar or a Luna bar and dinner. They'll do some sort of legume and rice. And they're like, what's the problem there? Right. But (laughs) for someone that's insulin resistance, all those foods might not necessarily be unhealthy, but when you really look at how many blood sugar spikes you're going to get from that, you're probably going to see some excess insulin being generated, which is probably a driver for your PCOS symptoms. And over time, that's where the resistance can be created. Yeah. And there is some controversy about this. Like, I don't know if you thought there's some like doctors and dietitians on TikTok that love to say it's all about calorie deficit, yada, yada, which is true. That's physics. But I will say it's been shown women with PCOS actually have 
kind of alterations in their hunger hormones. So eating that way, how I mentioned, is also going to make them starving and it's going to be hard to stick in a calorie deficit if you're eating that way. So yes, even if you have PCOS and you had an all glucose diet and it was under your calorie needs, you would lose weight, but you'd probably feel horrible and you wouldn't be able to sustain it for very long because of the alteration of your hunger hormones, which is why people, a lot of times with PCOS lose and gain weight back. So that's why I always want to respond to those people. (laughs) And the other thing is if you've ever worked with someone with PCOS, you'll know they have tried a calorie deficit, like they have. So yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially also in the sense of like, if you are having up and downs all day, like a roller coaster in your blood sugar all day long, you're going to get hungry very quickly once you've experienced that drop. And that might be like an hour after you just finished eating and you're like, I just ate all this food. Why am I hungry? Yeah, exactly. And then you need to go for that bar or you need to go for something or you're more tempted to grab whatever someone brought into work and you're like, I have no willpower. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Thank you for walking me through that. That's really helpful. And my next question is, I'm really curious to know a little bit more about fatigue because that's something a lot of people with PCOS experience or, you know, talk about just feeling really tired all the time. And you also mentioned the adrenals. So does it go hand in hand? Can we just talk a little bit about the PCOS fatigue in general and how that ties into our adrenal glands or adrenal systems? And yeah. Yeah. So, well, first and foremost, there's a lot of causes for fatigue in young women, especially that have PCOS that really aren't entirely the PCOS, namely thyroid conditions, B12 anemia, iron deficiency anemia. So if you're really feeling profoundly tired and you don't feel good, like it's always good to get a checkup with your doc because it might, you know, you go on TikTok and you see someone talking about adrenal fatigue and you're like, oh, that's it. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of like legit medical conditions that cause fatigue in women in their 20s and 30s. So that's something to think about. Women in their childbearing year, iron deficiency is the most common deficiency worldwide and extremely common in young women. So I always say that first and foremost to get that looked at. When it comes to the PCOS, so like if all that's fine, thyroid's fine, you're not deficient in anything, but you're really feeling tired, a couple things to look at. One would be the blood sugar, like we just talked about, preventing those spikes and crashes can help me feel much more balanced throughout the day. Second would be looking at caffeine. So if you've been overusing caffeine and you've kind of pushed yourself to a burnout, trying to pull back on that a little bit, which I know is so hard when you're feeling tired, but I really recommend only like one serving of caffeine a day for people with PCOS, which is really hard to do in college and grad school. Like I totally get it, but I used to be so, so, so much more tired in grad school Mm -hmm. and I drank so much coffee. Right. And then prioritizing quality sleep. Right. So blue light out of the bedroom, if possible, cool bedroom, tech out of the bedroom. I know people love to watch TV while they're sleeping, but I think that's probably the, one of the worst things you could do for your sleep. So no TV in the bedroom, or at least turn it off. I know people love to fall asleep to TV. For clients that do that, that I'm trying to get to stop, I say like maybe put on like an ASMR YouTube video that will stop or something like that. Wearing an eye mask is also really effective. So like we live in the city and they changed the light outside in our house to like a blue, blue light and the street lamp. And I don't want to change the blinds because we're probably moving next year. So I bought like a sleep mask and that works really well as well. So prioritizing really quality sleep, making sure you're not having caffeine. Ideally, so caffeine stays in your system for 12 hours, right? So even if you have a coffee at noon and you're like, oh, this is whatever, like you're still having that coffee in your system at midnight. So if you're trying to go to bed at 10 and you're tossing and turning till midnight, like that will affect how you feel the next day. So ideally 
cutting caffeine 12 hours before sleep. Wow. That's amazing. And I'm huge on sleep. That's probably one of my top personal goals for 2023 is just getting my sleep really, really in check. And one thing I've been prioritizing as well is going to bed a bit earlier, trying to be asleep before midnight. And that's changed the game for me. I use an aura ring and it will like give me my scores and it will show me my sleep graphs. And I've found that like wearing blue light glasses, starting around like 8, 9 p.m. and then turning off my phone, leaving it in a different room and going for a little walk or run in the morning so I can get some sunlight in my eyes and going to bed a little earlier has helped my sleep so much Mm -hmm. also. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a huge one. If you're really struggling with fatigue, like it sounds so obvious, but most people aren't doing it, like really trying to optimize their sleep. Yeah. Can we dive just a little bit more into the adrenals? Like how does that tie into PCOS and hormones in general? And is that a common issue? Like yeah. issues with the adrenals, is that common among PCOS? Yeah. So the adrenals are t- kind of two tiny glands that sit on top of the kidneys and they regulate some of the output of stress hormones. So if you receive a stressful email from your boss, or if you're literally being chased by a lion, right, your adrenals are going to tell your body to start producing more of these stress hormones, which is good because stress hormones keep you awake. They make you sharper. They actually make your like eyes constrict so you can see clearer, right? So they're good in theory. But a hundred years ago, our great grandma that's going to the market, she is not getting as many like stressful events happening to her per day, likely, right? She doesn't have a phone. She doesn't watch the news. She gets her news Mm -hmm. via a newspaper, probably like it's just totally different, right? So elevated levels of cortisol and stress hormones can convert into something called DHEA. DHEA is a hormone that is a precursor also to those androgenic hormones that can prevent ovulation and also, yeah. And also cause some of those aesthetic symptoms of PCOS, like the hair loss and the acne. So that's a big one for sure. When I got diagnosed with PCOS, my DHEA was actually super high, the stress hormone, which is not surprising because at the time I was doing a lot of coffee, CrossFit, that's something I've always, I honestly, and you were also a student at the time. Yeah. I think that might just be natural to my physiology. I'm kind of like an anxious person and I, I'm not sure if I've totally handled Mm -hmm. that, but really trying to actively manage the stress is huge for PCOS as well, especially if you have kind of some adrenal driven PCOS symptoms. There's some adaptogens that can be helpful for that, like ashwagandha and reishi. But to be honest with you, the best evidence is like just sleeping, less caffeine, active stress management, which we all know what those things are, but they're hard to do, right? Like (laughs) meditation. Exactly. Meditation, (laughs) yoga, walking, hanging out with friends, trying to have good work boundaries, sleeping, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the adaptogens. So my... Other question was in terms of supplements, and I know that this varies from person to person because as you said, someone might be deficient in B12 or in iron or whatever, like it's super specific from person to person, but are there any supplements in general that you have found are really impactful and really helpful for people with PCOS? Yeah. So I will say that people always want to talk supplements and that like, if I want a guaranteed video, that's going to do well on TikTok. I make a supplement <laughs> video, which I kind of hate doing because people just want to one, like fix exactly, everything. exactly. All the things we've talked about today, like all those fundamental things, the food, the fiber, the sleep, the stress management are like really much more important to be completely honest with you. There mm-hmm. are some good supplements out there for sure. The inositols are probably the most studied supplement for PCOS. There's quite a bit of clinical trials on those. 
They do seem to help significantly reduce kind of those blood sugar levels, insulin levels, which if that's a main driver of your PCOS, likely will be beneficial for you. Usually they're like a powder. Ovacetol is a brand I like. There's another one from Designs for Health called Sensitol that I like. And they can also help with ovulation for women that are trying to get pregnant with PCOS. N-acetylcysteine is another supplement that's pretty been studied for PCOS. It's actually an amino acid that's a precursor to glutathione, which is our body's primary antioxidant, which also has been found to help with PCOS blood sugar levels and like facial hair and some of the aesthetic symptoms. Making sure that there's no major nutrient deficiencies, vitamin D deficiency is very common with PCOS. There's actually data on fish oil supplements and getting enough omega-3s. I like fish oils, but I get nervous about fish oils because they're like an extremely isolated product from a food that, especially if you're getting them from Amazon, I just really worry about the quality of fish oils, to be completely honest with you, for a lot of fish oils out there. There are good ones for sure. I think Nordic Naturals is a brand that's pretty well studied, like the third-party tests and things of that nature, but it is still something, even if I got it from Amazon, I would probably be a little hesitant. Cod liver oil is actually something that I'm taking right now, which has a lot of vitamin A in it. So it's not always good for people that are pregnant. If they're taking a bunch of other vitamin A on its own, it's probably fine. But I actually, my recommendation for that is just eat enough fish. So trying Mm -hmm. to eat fish three times a week is my recommendation for the fish oil. What Um, about magnesium? Love magnesium too. Magnesium is great. Magnesium, if you're deficient, can help with insulin resistance. It also can help with sleep if that's a problem for you. It can help with anxiety. So it might kind of like inadvertently help with some of the PCOS symptoms. So I do love magnesium at night as well. Awesome. And I also, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also believe magnesium can help a lot with liver detoxification and like just helping your liver properly detoxify hormones that might be in excess. Is that right? Yeah. The other thing is it can help with bowel regularity, especially if you're using a magnesium citrate, which is probably like one of the biggest ways that we detox. People are always like obsessed with detox, but detox, mm-hmm. you pooping is like a great detox Literally that's tool. our daily detox. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're not pooping regularly, like magnesium citrate specifically can be pretty helpful for that. Gotcha. And you mentioned the CrossFit experience a few times. So in terms of workouts, what have you found has worked really well for you? and maybe has worked well for people you've worked with as well. Yeah. So the main thing, especially if you have any sort of insulin resistance, is doing something to work your muscles. I usually say three times a week. So your muscles are your body's primary storage of excess carbohydrates, right? So if you eat, let's say for lunch today, I'm going to make a little Mediterranean bowl. I'm going to throw some chickpeas in there. And because I exercised this morning, my muscles are a little bit empty. My body probably used a lot of the stored glucose when I was on the Stairmaster. So it'll suck all that glucose up. It'll get used as energy. And then the rest of it will get sucked into my cells for storage as glycogen. So doing something to work your muscles. So CrossFit theoretically does that, but I think it might've just Mm -hmm. been a little bit too intense for my body, but it doesn't quite matter, right? It could be Pilates. It could be bar. It could just be like some sort of weightlifting class. It could be lifting weight on your own, but something that you feel your muscles the next day, you're like, oh, I'm a little bit sore. You Mm. should feel that a couple of times a week. Walking is amazing for PCOS, obviously. I don't think that like, I know there's these rules, like people are almost like scared of high intensity interval training. Like it's immediately going to do something bad. 
I don't think that's necessarily true either. There's amazing benefits for high intensity interval training for blood sugar and also brain health. So what I do is like, so I have a Peloton bike that I bought during the pandemic. Instead of doing a 60 minute class, maybe I'll do a 20 minute class plus some Pilates or weightlifting, right? So kind of that balance there is important instead of like excessive, long, steady state cardio. Got you. Yeah, for sure. And just in general, in terms of hormone health, I think a lot of people, and maybe just because of TikTok, are kind of like so scared of like the hit or the running. But I don't know. I'm personally currently training for a half marathon, which is something outside of my comfort zone. I just wanted to like challenge myself this year to do something new and different. But I also think there's a big difference between training for a half marathon, getting five hours of sleep every night and being constantly drinking coffee versus training for a half marathon and managing your stress, meditating every day, like going to sleep at a reasonable hour and not overdoing in the caffeine. Your body's going to respond to that more intense exercise in a very different way. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think there's a lot of fear mongering out there, but it's like, what's going to happen, right? Like your body's going to combust if you get on the cycle. Like, no, it'll be fine. And you're a hundred percent right. Like how your body's feeling going into those things plays a big role as well. Like everything else in your life and in your lifestyle that could also be considered stressful also matters, right? Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, amazing. So to finish off before we do some rapid fire, could you just walk me through like a day in the life of eating and self-care activities that you love and that make you feel your best? Yeah, So I get up pretty early. I get up less early now than I used to. I used to get up at 5.15, but now I usually get up at six, which I guess is like moderately early. (laughs) I try not to scroll first thing in the morning. I'm getting much better at that, but it's very easy to scroll, turn over and look at the phone. So trying very hard not to do that. I usually get up, wash my face, then I'll kind of putter downstairs. Now, this is where the challenge is. I love coffee. And I'm not going to lie and say I didn't drink coffee on an empty stomach until like literally two months ago. (laughs) But that's something I've been doing my whole life. So I try and make like a cup of tea or a matcha and save my kind of coffee for later if I'm going to do it. So I make a drink usually. And then I do have one of those like five minute a day journals. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty good for just like setting the mood for the day and how I feel about everything and gratitude journaling. And then I'll usually exercise. I like to exercise right when I get up. So that's maybe when I'll, if it's nice out in the summer here, I'll go for a walk. But unfortunately, I live in like Pennsylvania and it's extremely dark at 6 a.m. So (laughs) I'll maybe use my Peloton or do some Pilates here. A couple times a week, I'll go to solid core, which is like a- Love solid core. Yeah, which is a reformer class. And then if I have time, I love to sit in my sauna, but usually I'll actually do that at night. So get back or finish up my workout. I will usually have breakfast then and get to work on whatever I'm doing that day. I do a couple things. I'm teaching adjunct, as I mentioned to you earlier at the school, or I'll start on content or I'll have some clients that I'm working with. So that's whatever throughout the day. What's your, some of your favorite breakfasts? some of my favorite breakfast. So I make, I love eggs. I actually love eggs and beans. Like I think that's a great combo of protein and fiber. And people are always like, what is your bean recipe? I'm like, it's just beans with sriracha on it. Like I just, I love beans. Which beans do you like? I soak and pressure cook like one type of bean a week usually. So this week I have lentils around, but I'll do lentils. I'll do chickpeas. I like white beans. Those are pretty much the ones I'll do, but I literally just eat them. Like they don't taste amazing. I like them. Yeah. I like I, them. I did. They're just, they make me feel so good. So I'm like, I just be eating my beans <laughs> or I love 
when I was working out of the house, I almost always had a smoothie every day because I would drink it in the car. So I love a smoothie with a lot of protein and fat and fiber. So I'll do like a scoop of protein, some nut butter, maybe a little bit of frozen berries, some chia seeds or basil seeds for fiber. I have a lot. If you are interested, I have a whole playlist on TikTok of like smoothies recipes. So I'll do that a lot. And then what about lunch and dinner? Yeah. What do you like? So I actually, I love, it's almost like habit for me to have some sort of salad for lunch. It makes me feel really good. So sometimes I'll just throw whatever leftovers we have, like on top of a bunch of arugula and call that lunch. That's what Um, I do too. Yeah. Or like meal prep different veggies and just have them ready and I'll just like throw them. Yeah. So that's kind of my go-to. I like to have, make sure I'm getting enough fiber in there, a good source of protein. Sometimes I'll prep like curry chicken salad with just pulled chicken in the instant pot. I also love soups. So like if I make chili or like a turkey chickpea soup, I'll have that sometimes for lunch too. I actually don't love warm lunches, like totally warm lunches. I like some elements of it to be cold. Like a green or something. Yeah, I'm not sure why. So yeah, those are my go-to breakfast and lunches. I try to, when I'm done with work for the day or done creating content, I usually, if I put up a video, I usually put it up around 4 or 4.30. I try and take like a little bit of a walk to simulate like a commute and like that coming home feeling. Because now that I totally work from home, I feel like I don't get that feeling that I used to get at the end of the day when I'd come home and drop my bag and have a glass of water. So I try and like simulate that just even if it's for a couple minutes. I've got like a walking tread for my desk that's coming tomorrow. And I'm really excited about it. But I was like, I still think I'm going to go outside and do my end of day walk because it just feels good to come in the door. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true, especially for people who work from home, which is obviously so much more common these days. I work from home too. I've never thought about that. But yes. So even if I've like done all my activity for the day, I will literally just walk around the block. But it like gets my mind ready to be like, I take off my shoes. And then I'm like, okay, I'm ready to like do what I was going to do for the night. Nice. And what are your favorite snacks? So to be honest with you, I don't snack a ton. One of those reasons is I try to make my meals extremely filling with all that protein, fat, and fiber, but I do still snack. Usually in the afternoon, I love pecans, like raw pecans, a little bit of nut butter with some celery. I like, I actually love peanut butter and celery, like ants on a log mm-hmm. with some dark chocolate chips. That's honestly pretty much it. I don't do a lot of snack prepping. When I was working full-time in the hospital, I would do more. So I used to make these like lemon tahini coconut balls, like like almost like little uh-huh. energy balls. I should do that again because those are a fun thing to have around. But now that I'm like home all the time, I sort of stopped thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, one of my favorite recently has been, which my nutritionist actually recommended to me, is just like one rice cake or two with cottage cheese and pulled chicken on top. Oh, I love salt that. and pepper is really good. That sounds really good. It's yummy. Yeah, I, I love that. Recommend. When I'm on the go, I actually love like a chomps meat stick. Yes. I don't know if you've ever tried those. I, I love, love them. Yeah, I love the jalapeno beef. So I usually have a box of those around. Sometimes I'll do olives or like pistachios. I try and kind of lean on more like the protein fat type Mm -hmm. of snack if I'm gonna do something honestly sometimes I like dark chocolate as a snack too like in the afternoon I'll have a little tea and dark chocolate just even if I'm not very hungry but I feel like I almost need something like emotional like that (laughs) is a a good good go for me nice love that okay let's jump into some rapid fire questions I do these with every guest so you can just answer them intuitively but the first question is do you have like a mantra or quote that you love that you often come back to or just something you like reminding yourself of? 
Yeah. Well, this is the one thing that comes to me and um, it might not be like applicable to everybody, but this is like my second year of kind of doing this content creation thing and making my own money and working for myself. So it's, I'm a successful business owner because sometimes I feel like I'm like, what am I doing? But like, I'm like, no, I have an LLC, I have a business. So that's kind of what I tell myself when I am feeling not so successful. Yeah. I love that. I think that's really important. I'm huge on affirmation. So love that one. And then do you have any books that have been really impactful in your life and that you would recommend to anyone listening? Well, honestly, the book that's been most impactful in my life is a fantasy romance novel. It has nothing to do with health. <laughs> I read the Akatar series, the Court of Thorns and Roses series. I don't know if you've heard of that during the pandemic. And it like totally turned me into a reader. I had not read. I think What's I just- the name? A Court of Thorns and Roses or the Akatar series. It's like the big book talk series that uh-huh, people uh-huh. talk about. But they are the books that got me back into reading. Like, and now I'm a big reader. I read every night before bed, which is like a huge wellness practice. So I guess inadvertently PCOS related. But <laughs> when it comes to PCOS books, I do really like Aviva Rahm's books. I think that she writes some really like clear, concise books on kind of hormone health. Is there any specific one that you've read? I think her one, the last one she wrote is called Hormone Intelligence. Nice. Amazing. And then what makes you feel like your higher self? Honestly, when I'm taking care of myself, like when I have worked out and used my sauna and shower and eaten a good meal, like I just feel like I'm vibrating on a totally different level. Also, I know, but I feel like that's so Taurus, like loving a routine. Like I, in the last year and a half, I've said this a lot on the podcast, but I've traveled a lot. And like after graduating from college, like I was working remotely pretty much the whole time. So there were many, many times when I was just kind of moving around, going everywhere. And then starting in the fall of 2022, I was like really prioritizing my wellness practices and creating routines again. And it just makes me feel so good. There's just something about those simple daily habits when you're consistent with them that just completely changes how you feel. Yeah. I'm like so routine driven. Honestly, I love traveling, but one of the reasons I'm not like a massive traveler is because I just don't feel myself when I'm like out of my element. Like I need to have all my things like, I feel to that. feel good. So my routines, honestly, and then being with friends that also helps me feel pretty good. Amazing. And then last question is if someone didn't hear anything from this entire episode, except this very part, what would you want to leave them with? eat fiber and be nicer to yourself. I feel like everybody on the internet is coming from such a point of self-hatred. Like I do feel like a lot of people following me are only following me because they think it will help them lose weight because they hate themselves. And I just wish everyone would come at things with a lot more self-love and compassion because we're in it with our bodies for the long run, right? It's not like you're going to lose weight and then it's no longer going to be your body. Like your body is with you through it all. So woof. Amazing note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been so fun. I feel like I'm leaving this episode so well informed, just knowing so much more on how to support my PCOS friends. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have also really appreciated everything. So can you let everyone know where they can follow you or work with you? Yeah. So you can follow me on the conscious nutritionist at TikTok and Instagram. That's majorly, majorly where I am. I do have a wait list in my bio for kind of one-on-one coaching. I also run a group program with my partner, Amber Fisher, who also works with women with PCOS. We're currently running it right now, but there should hopefully be another round later in the spring. So yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on and listening. Thank you guys for tuning in and I'll see you guys next week. 
Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.